0: Now, let's get on with the show.
1: Welcome everybody to another episode of Compliance Conversations. I'm CJ Wolf with Healthicity. And um, we uh, are glad that you're listening to these episodes. We wanna just remind you that um, it's important to uh, subscribe and and hit the like button uh, so that others can find uh, this content and that you also don't miss uh, future episodes. So just a quick reminder there. Today, uh, we're, we're going to switch things up a little bit. Um, we've had Nick Merkin on uh, prior podcasts as a guest. Um, but today I'm going to be on the hot seat. And so, uh, Nick, maybe we'll just first give you a quick uh, 30 seconds or so to reintroduce yourself. We know you've done it on other podcasts, but, um, you know, I know, uh, some may have not listened to those other podcasts, so maybe just tell us quickly about yourself and then we'll let you ask me questions.
0: That sounds good. Thank you, CJ. Um, Just a a little bit of background. So, my name is Nick Merkin. Um, I'm actually a healthcare attorney by background, but I run a consulting firm um, called Compliagent. And uh, we're a national firm and we specialize in building out compliance infrastructure for different kinds of healthcare provider organizations.
1: Yeah. And I'll just put in there besides Nick being an expert in healthcare compliance, he's just good people. I've I've known Nick for a while and I just appreciate his uh his attitude and his approach and he's just so great to work with. So thanks Nick for for
0: being who you are. Oh thank you my pleasure and thank you for having me. I uh I don't know how many uh how many interviews you've done but uh how does it feel to be uh on the other side of the uh of the mic, so to speak. Well, I'm a little scared now.
1: <laughs> what have I done? What have I done to pass guests that now karma's gonna come back and get me?
0: <laughs> well, it'll uh it'll I'll be easy on you I promise. Okay, well good. well tell let us start with this because I'd um I'm always interested in in uh people's backgrounds and you know compliance and particularly healthcare compliance is um kind of a unique field you know it's in some sense it's not the kind of thing that uh you thought about hey in sixth grade you know i want to grow up and become a a fireman or a astronaut or something like that right. Not that many people <laughs> say well i'd like to be a you know chief compliance officer at a uh, uh you know a major medical center or something along those lines and i i know um i know that your background um is in clinical medicine originally how um tell us a little bit about that and how you um got into the world of compliance
1: yeah, it's a good question cuz my kids still ask me, "Now what is it you do again, dad?" You know, "Oh, I teach people about rules." They're like, "That sounds like the worst job in the world." <laughs> <laughs> um, but you're right. I I started um in in the clinical route. I I loved in in undergrad. I took an anatomy class and just fell in love with anatomy. My anatomy teacher was just one of those people who inspired me and I and I was in the, you know, the cadaver lab looking at, you know, cadavers and just thought, wow, this is it. So that was my initial desire to kind of be in life sciences. I I ended up going to medical school, loved medical school, I loved the learning, but kind of towards the end of medical school, I thought, there's, I don't love this direct patient care as much as I thought I would, um, even though I love the science. And so I was just What do I do now? It's like, whoa, I just spent all this time and money. Um, So long story short, I I finished medical school started a residency program in psychiatry of all things. Um, And early in that residency, I I thought, you know, I, I need to do something different and Uh, jumped ship and and started working for uh, a large healthcare organization uh, called Intermountain Healthcare that was looking for somebody dumb enough to uh, try to teach doctors about Medicare compliance. (laughs) I guess I was dumb enough, you know, I love teaching. And so I loved the healthcare side and they were looking for somebody with a little bit of experience to, to kind of play that angle with the docs. Um, And then from there, it, it, progressed into, so I started with coding and billing, um, certified coder, medical coder, and then I got into compliance overall, uh, worked at MD Anderson Cancer Center as their director of uh, billing compliance, and then went to the University of Texas system level as a, uh, for the academic and medical institutions. And then I was an international, uh, worked as a chief compliance officer for an international medical device company. Um, And then I've been doing teaching and consulting. So kind of been doing it for a while but you're right it's weird it, it's it's funny how we all end up where we are but we all do come from different paths right we meet people from law right. people from finance who do auditing nurses all sorts of great people
0: yeah that's that's actually one of the things i most enjoy about working in a compliance field is um you know as as i mentioned i have a legal background and you know i come across people and, and interact with people all the time that um you know have a clinical medicine background maybe a research background um, a lot of uh, a lot of people come to compliance uh on the finance side you know they've been right. um you know, cfos of hospitals or other kind of healthcare organizations and i uh i think you know the the multidisciplinary nature of it if that's uh if that's a good way of saying it is uh is uh is kind of one of the things that makes it a really interesting um you know career path and you know like i think kind of like you were saying uh, life sometimes only makes sense in in reverse, right? Like if right. you would uh, you would talk about how you got here. Then you know might might not make a lot of sense, but it does. So you know, so on that, if you had to, uh, you know, I, w- I want to know a little bit about what you're passionate about within the field. So uh, you know, maybe a way to ask this is if you had to write a book on a compliance related subject, or you know, you mentioned that I know you've done some university level teaching on compliance. You know, what would be the subject of that? What would you write about? Yeah.
1: Um... I think what gets me excited in the field of compliance is the, the whole issue of medical necessity. Um, you know, I, I've spent time doing all sorts of compliance, HIPAA and coding and all that sort of stuff. But the medical necessity piece for me is exciting because it really is the foundation of healthcare compliance. And what, and what I mean by that is, you know, I know doctors and we have trained doctors well enough in the documentation rules and in the coding rules. That I could get them to write a perfect note for a procedure so that from a coding or a paper review, somebody would read the note. Yep, that's the right code. But if it wasn't medically necessary or appropriate to perform the service in the first place, it shouldn't have been done and billed. And so, in the Medicare world, right, medical necessity is this foundation. And so, and it's, and it's, it, it's a space that I think combines a little bit of my backgrounds, right? I like the medical piece and understanding why would somebody do a heart cath? Why would somebody do a surgery? And there's tons of of settlements, you know, with DOJ and OIG where doctors and hospitals have, have you know, had false claims act uh, settlements because the services weren't medically necessary. So I would love to pontificate on that in a book.
0: <laughs> well, that, what's interesting, I think, about the way you framed the question surrounding medical necessity is there's a legal aspect of it, right? So there's, you know, there's standards that um, and criteria that have to be met um, in order to, you know, have a, a procedure or, you know, maybe it's a, a, a medication or something be right. deemed medically necessary. But making that determination requires some, you know, some medical knowledge, some clinical knowledge, because it's uh know you have to know how to make that argument so you know tell us a little more about you know how does that work when you you know maybe maybe there's a a, you could see you know sort of real life examples of you know what kind of questions do you get asked how does this come up and and what kind of analysis do you do
1: yeah it it's a good i think that's a good question um so an example uh, we see these all the time and so one that just kind of came up a few months ago for me uh, this was in um, one of the districts in New York either the eastern district or the the southern district of New York um, and it had to do with um, dialysis patients so dialysis patients um, need you need vascular access to perform dialysis and you have to have a large enough oh. diameter of a of a of a tube for the lack of a <laughs> better to, to withdraw blood send it through a machine and put it back in well, Dialysis patients are getting dial hemodialysis, you know, three times a week. So their veins and their arteries start to to lose patency. And so typically you have to surgically create a fistula, which is a connection between the artery and vein, so that you have a, a safe place that main that maintains a patency um, to insert these needles to do dialysis. Cause over time, you start to lose access ports in other words. So surgeons do that. And then these fistula, these fistulas often can become, uh, can get clots in them, or they can become obstructed, which obviously affects how you're, how well you're able to do dialysis. Well, there, this case in New York, um, a nephrologist uh, was the key Tam whistleblower said these doctors are doing what are called fistulograms and angioplasties. Those are diagnostic tests of the fistula, you inject contrast and look at it to see if it's blocked. Um, And then angioplasties, you take a balloon and you you open up that space. But the allegation was these doctors were doing them as a routine, that it wasn't medically necessary for them to put the patients through that. In other words, Doctors can do it, they have the skills, but just because they do doesn't mean every dialysis patient should have that done. There should be some criteria, and typically those criteria relate to how well is dialysis going, and there's some medical tests that say, oh, there may be something wrong with this fistula, let's go in and look at it. You shouldn't automatically just do these things, there should be medical necessity. So that was that was just one recent example, and, and that affects dialysis patients. but. You get this in so many different specialties. And so that's why I find it interesting. I'm not a nephrologist, but I know enough of the science to go ask nephrologists, you know, what, and to read, you know, guidelines and clinical studies and those sorts of things to find out was that medically necessary or not. Now I know on the legal side, Nick, and maybe you have some thoughts. I talk to attorneys and they're like, yeah, this is the argument of of, uh, of experts, right? You get nephrologists who say it was medically necessary and nephrologists who say it wasn't. So that can muddy the waters too,
0: right? And 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 probably should be mentioned. You know, the, these analysis might not be, uh, you know, not, might not be implied one case at a time. You may have millions of dollars worth of reimbursements that are at issue. Um, you know that a particular practice or a particular you know physician has done over the course of years. Um, yep. that are being challenged, you know, in 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 a medical necessity question. Yeah. So it's it can be very high stakes.
1: Yeah. And another example of that, there was a, a cardiologist in um in Tennessee who, you know, cardiologists will are looking at um the blood vessels that feed the heart. And if there's blockage, then that's when you can get. Uh, angina and potential heart attacks. Well, in order to fix that blockage, they can put in stents and they can open up those arteries. Well, that should only be done when the blockage is is to a point where it's starting to affect things. And so this this cardiologist in Tennessee, it was alleged uh, he was essentially overestimating the amount of blockage and saying the blockage was 50 and 60% when Looking at the images, it was maybe only 10% or 20%, which doesn't necessarily rise to the, the need to perform these cardiac procedures. Well, that was the allegation. Again, in this case, it was a medical director who alleged against another doctor. And um, they ended up settling for, for millions of dollars because like you said, it was over and over and over again, he, he was doing these cardiac casts that weren't weren't necessarily appropriate.
0: So, So- taking kind of a a step back so those are some you know particularly specific examples of cases but you know putting on our our compliance officer hat so i'm uh you know a compliance officer um you know maybe it's for a very large medical practice maybe it's in a hospital-based setting where the types of procedures that that you described are going on um you know, are there, and, and I'm designing my, you know, compliance work plan for the year or my compliance plan for the year. And I know this is a risk issue, right? You know, right. I've, I read the, you know, I, I read the OIG reports. I, I see what enforcement actions are going on. You know, we've done all the things you're supposed to do, doing a risk analysis and, and detecting this as a risk. Tell me about, you know, what would be your recommendations you know maybe it's from a policy perspective maybe it's from a training perspective maybe it's from an auditing and monitoring perspective what are the kinds of things especially if i'm i'm a compliance officer and you know like we mentioned not not all of us come from a clinical background so we may not have as much sensitivity about this issue or, or really even enough expertise to um to, to make some of these determinations you know what what kind of infrastructure should I be thinking about putting into place, um, you know, like practically speaking?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I, I'm glad you prefaced it with kind of this risk assessment because, for example, um, one of the issues that came up in, in a prior medical necessity audit was hyperbaric oxygen therapy. This is uh, those hyperbaric oxygen chambers that people enter into to get their wounds treated with this high pressure oxygen if you don't do HBO therapy, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, that should not be on your risk, right? Even though there's been all sorts of settlements there. So you're, the, the premise that you started with, I think is the right one. Do your risk assessment, know what's going on out there, and then find out which of those things are you doing, right? So some of this is data analytics, like urine drug screening is a big medical necessity issue right now. So do you do urine drug screening and do you do a certain okay. volume? So I think part of it is, knowing what yeah. your business does and what it doesn't do.
0: Right. To, to that, to your point, and I, and I think it's a good one. I, you know, often talk to clients about doing those kinds of risk assessments. And, you know, what I tell compliance officers is take a, you know, know your, know your organization's um, revenue streams, right? That's like right. You should know where money is coming from because risk is generally going to follow money. That's right, right. financial risks are not the only risks, but they're you know, probably one of the major, if not if not the major, compliance risk in any organ in any healthcare organization. Um, and you know, if you're a compliance officer, you may not come from a finance background, but you know, you should learn that. Right, sit down with your CFO, sit down with the people on the finance side, and understand, you know, wh- where are we making our money from, and 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 pick up on things like, wow, you know, there are certain um, there are certain providers that are making that are you know doing a disproportionate number you know amount of billing um yep. for you know a particular procedure you know is that um you know is that standard what what's happening at the at uh, you know at a comparable organization across town like are uh, you know is that something that's going to get picked up on um so i think yeah your, your point is well taken but yeah let me i didn't mean to stop you and in your uh, in your discussion of you know how do I how do I stop it how do I
1: yeah mitigate and that my uh, that's I think that comment is is spot on um, and let me um, kind of continue with that but I'm going to uh, bait all of you and I'm going to say I'm going to continue with that in a few minutes we're going to take a short break and then I'll come back and give you my answer to the rest of Nick's question.
0: If it seems like the OIG is constantly making work plan updates, it's because, well, they are. Who has the time to stay up on all those new changes? We do. Each month, CJ Wolf issues a monthly OIG work plan e-brief to make it easy for you to keep up with all the updates coming your way. Head over to healthicity.com resources to check out e-briefs, webinars, blogs, and so much more. Now let's get back to CJ for the rest of this episode of Compliance Conversations.
1: Okay. Welcome back. Right, welcome everybody. back. Yes. So Nick, let me let me respond to that a little bit more because you're taught you, I think you were asking a little bit of how do you put, you know, practicality into your plan and and address these issues. So I think you we talked about identifying those risks. And once you have, kinda identify what what is risky about those activities? And one thing to make sure you add is um, Medicare has, as you know, LCDs and N- uh, NCDs, local coverage determinations and national coverage determinations. So now, when we're talking about medical necessity in this space, it might a doctor might clinically think this is medically appropriate. But Medicare says, we're not going to pay for it for these conditions. And so we don't consider it medically necessary for payment. So there could be a difference between performing something within, you know, the scope of a physician's license, which may be appropriate for them to discern, but they can't automatically demand that Medicare pay for it if Medicare has a policy that says they're not going to and I'll give you an example. Um, So some um services like you probably heard of facet injections and joint injections these are you know for people who have chronic pain in the back and certain areas some lcds state you have to do certain number of months of conservative therapy before you're allowed to proceed to this higher level of service meaning you have to demonstrate that they fail these lower levels of service before you can do this other one so one way to Deal with that in a practical sense is you 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 find the codes that relate to those procedures you run some sort of uh you know revenue uh report that says these are our top producers of these codes and then you go in and you look at the records and say for that one particular issue oh did they do three months of conservative therapy did they document that it failed before they did the injection and so that to me is an example of how you can kind of take a practical approach, you take this step by step approach and you kind of go backwards to see did they do what they needed to do before they before they build for it.
0: And and so, you know, it sounds like a lot of what you're you're mentioning touches on the issue of having the the providers, you know, within your own organization um having them develop a sensitivity to these kind of questions, right? And and you know, you mentioned like that the a payment determination might actually be different than a standard of care determination. That's right. right? If if you're in a situation where um, you know, kind of the science, so to speak, has progressed faster That's right. than, you know, the the the, uh, the willingness to, to cover, especially if it's a particularly expensive procedure or or uh you know pharmaceutical product or medical device or something like that. How do you, you know, I think kind of like you were saying about your experience in medical school and how distinct that was from some of the things you do as a compliance officer, my sense is, you know, physicians don't know a lot about this, right? And, you know, maybe for really good reason, a physician right. is trained to treat a patient to the best of her ability. And that's, you know, and, and and that's probably as it should be. But, you know, then, of course, there's, you know, financial realities and, and legal realities that, um, that can temper that at times. So, how do you, how do you teach physicians about that? How do you talk to them about that without worrying about them, you know, compromising their ability yeah. to to really treat a patient? You know, yeah,
1: that is su- that is such a good good question because it, this, first of all, I think comes down to relationships, and I think most people in compliance know that we need to get out of our offices and meet with people, meet with the folks who are on the front lines. And so number one, you better be developing relationships with your docs and with your your medical officers, right? So you most organizations will have a chief medical officer to kind of deal with some of these quality issues. But you're spot on. I usually approach docs with with deferring to their judgment and saying, my discussion today is not to tell you how to practice medicine. That is up to you and, and, and the leadership of our organization of what we're going to do. I'd like to talk to you about what you might and might not get paid for. And that might dictate what you're willing to do in a practical sense. And so, um, you know, I don't wanna judge their clinical decision-making but I want them to face the reality that you can't just do services for free. Even if you think it's the best thing, doctor, do you work for free? Would you be willing to do all of this for the next year without getting paid? Do you believe in the service that much that you're willing to do this without getting paid? Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the organization says, this is so important that we are gonna put our money where our mouth is and we're going to do that. But typically when I drill down to that level, most of them are like, well, I'm not sure I'm gonna do this if Medicare is not gonna pay me for it. That changes the dynamic a little bit. And so I try to keep those two issues separate. I try to say, you're the doctor, you're the expert in in the clinical decision-making and no one wants to take that away from you, even Medicare. But what we start to get into now is payment. And just like you mentioned, Nick, financial reality is is sometimes reality and you just need to explain to them, now we're talking about what you can get paid for. Oh, but let me just use this code because I know the guy down the street gets paid for it. Yeah? Well, that's when you start to worry about the False Claims Act because if you're using a code that doesn't accurately describe what you did, now you're potentially falsifying what you're reporting to the government. So I, I try to divide things by: here's the clinical decision making, here's the financial reality.
0: Yeah, I mean, you you touch on something that that I think is really crucial, and that's you know credibility as a compliance officer, and and you know the way you put it is you know don't sit in your office; you need to you need to get out there and walk the halls and make friends and. Solve people's problems, right? Like right. you know, I, right. I think a lot of the ways that that I like to talk about being a compliance officer is much less as a policeman, which is probably the, um, you know, when 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 many people outside of the field and who work in healthcare think of the term compliance officer, they think about this is the person who, you know, who who's there to to get me in trouble if I do something that's a a policy violation. Or something like that, but it's yeah. you know really really crucial if you're gonna have to have those tough conversations, and they're and, and they're and, and they are truly tough. You know, you're you're telling someone who may have decades of experience in training that you know there's you know there there may be some coverage determination that says that it's not so simple what you you know how you treat your patient, and that's a. That's a difficult conversation, you know, and I can tell from experience and I'm sure you can too. That's a really difficult conversation to have with somebody, um, you know, for really understandable reasons.
1: Yeah. And one thing that um, I sometimes do for the doctors who are very passionate, I, I say, look, you're an expert here. Do you know that the local Medicare administrative contractor has meetings when they talk about these LCDs? Do you know that you can write letters to say Um, You know, this policy should be accepted because the most recent clinical study X, Y, and Z shows A, B, and C. And so some doctors are like, "Eh, I don't want to, I don't want to bother with that. And other docs are like, yeah, I want to get involved, right? That's, that's something that I should get involved in. And so they, um, you know, they can get engaged in the process of getting uh, local coverage determinations approved. And and getting changes made with clinical evidence. Um, Got it. Some, yeah.
0: So one of the, the the terms that I always hear in in conversations about medical necessity is documentation, proper documentation, um, right. because you know you at some point may have to defend, um, you know, if you're a physician or you're a healthcare organization, um, why you made a, a particular decision, you know, a particular treatment decision um and you know trying to do that by recreating things that that you know aren't found in the medical record that aren't found in the file gets a lot harder so i was wondering if you could say a few words on on you know proper documentation and you know really practically um how do we as compliance officers try to encourage that and ensure that that gets done well yeah um
1: i whenever i talk to people who enter Uh, make entries into the medical record, I I use the analogy of you're the artist, right? And I'm not an artist. um, But some people are artists, and they can paint a picture. And I say, with your words, you get to paint the picture. And so be thinking about that, that this service, these medical records may need to be requested to demonstrate that the service was medically necessary. So please paint the picture. I'm not telling you to falsify, but paint the picture in an accurate way. So, in other words, I'll use that example that I used with the facet injections. I would make sure you put in the medical record, you know, Mrs. Smith is on her fourth month of conservative therapy X, Y, and Z. She has seen no improvement in in this therapy. The next uh, appropriate option is to do the injection. So, you've painted the picture in the medical record for somebody who's going to read that um, potentially. To, to demonstrate that you met that requirement of medical necessity, which is failure of, you know, concert, less, uh, less invasive and, and more conservative therapy first, before you went right. on to this next procedure. So, including that, so I, I'd like to use the term paint the picture right paint it in a way. And sometimes docs are like, well, that should be obvious, right, because they're in a hurry. They're just documenting stuff. So it is a balancing act. I don't expect them to, to teach an auditor, you know, in a in a medical record everything they learned in medical school. But you could lead people in an appropriate way to say, look, I met X, Y, and Z. You know, the requirements say I need to do these things. And you put that in the documentation. And maybe you even get um ancillary uh uh providers to do some of that work, meaning nurses. Um, you know, PAs, nurse practitioners, so that's not necessarily the doc, but you could review the records and say, you know, based off of these last three months, this is this
0: is what the next step is. Yeah, and, and to build on what you're saying, I think, you know, one of the things that's important to teach people is, you know, you may say, well, I don't need to be so detailed about this today, because if somebody were to ask me tomorrow, um, I'm familiar enough with the case, and, and I could talk about it, but you may have to have this conversation two years, and Thousands of patients. Yes. After you've made that, you know, made that treatment decision, and not only are you not going to remember that colleague who was in the room with you, well, that person may be long gone. Um, that's right. You know, the nurse you were working with, the, um, you know, even even the patient themselves or the patient family who you discussed it with, may not be there. So, you know, what I like to tell people is, pretend that you know there is going to be nobody around that's going to remember this, including you. Are you putting enough information in there that you're going to be able to look at that and say oh okay this was the situation and this is what the discussion was and this was um why this was a proper determination exactly
1: and the other thing i like to tell them is um you know how close to the edge of the cliff do you want to be because some docs will be like well i'll argue that in court if i have to well wouldn't it be better to have it so clear in the documentation that it doesn't get denied in the first place, right? Some docs are like, well, no, I'll just skimp through it. And then I'll prove to them later. That is an approach, but it's usually a very time intensive, usually expensive (laughs) approach to say, I'll defend it when I have to, as opposed to saying, let me be proactive and put everything in there up front that I can in a reasonable manner. Um, I don't want to overburden them, but you know, these are the three or four things that you could do today that might help prevent this claim from being denied.
0: Got it. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the future and the evolution of, um, really the field of medicine and and healthcare compliance in particular. I think we're, um, you know, it's, it's, it's almost a platitude that we're, that we're, you know, standing at a time in history and in medical history where there's, you know, advances, um, you know telemedicine digital health um you know in within the the field of pharmaceuticals within the field of medical device that things are advancing really really quickly in terms of available treatments and, and and the standards of care um how do you see that and you know we mentioned a little bit about you know situations where the medicine can progress faster than the treatment decision um you know h- how how do you address that challenge if you're you know a, a healthcare organization you know whether you're a physician a compliance officer working with that organization it seems to me something that um you know is a, is a challenge that's going to become more and more acute as the years go by i think you're right
1: and one example is personalized medicine so you know years ago if a woman had breast cancer all breast cancers were treated the same way not today they do molecular diagnostics to look for receptors on that cancer tumor And now you have under breast cancer, you have all of these different subtypes molecularly because you want to find out that type of receptor will respond to this kind of medication. That one won't. And so that's personalized medicine. It means you're, you're going down to the genetic level to identify it. And it's, it's, it's really the next, um, and we're already in it, but it's the next major phase of medicine. Why is that important from a compliance standpoint? Well, You've, if you if you follow DOJ uh, and settlements, you'll see how many fraud settlements have happened because of genetic testing, right? So people hear, really the, lay, the lay person hears genetic testing, it's the newest thing and they hear it on the news and that's exciting and it is, the science is really cool. But as you mentioned, and we've talked about already, the payment methodologies and the coverage decisions haven't caught up with that. So people often get ahead of themselves and in some cases, appropriately so. You want to take care of people's health, but you, you, you need to be engaged. And so what I would recommend to large systems, be engaged with your professional society. So if, if you're an oncologist, um, make sure your oncology professional society is leading the charge with Medicare, for example, um, and coverage decisions and saying, look, this is so important. This science is so important. We need to make sure Medicare covers it. Um, and that's really the only way is you have to plead your case. And so for large health systems, personalized medicine is is, is is an example of what you just asked. But in the broader sense, you know, other technologies, other devices um, that can really benefit people, you just need to be pushing your, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but you have to kind of push your agenda. You have to say, um, right. this is really important and the science is here. If you wait for Medicare to discover it, um, it, it's gonna be five and 10 years later, <laughs> right? But if if you're bringing it to the forefront when those studies are being released, um, I, th- I think you can get these things, you can get codes. So CPT codes, for example, are approved when those services become more of a standard. And so get into the game early to get a recognized code and then to get payers to cover it for recognized reasons.
0: So, so we've, we've talked a lot about... Um you know, Medicaid, Medicare, and, you know, federal programs, are there differences um, if you're, you know, dealing with or working for an organization that, um, you know, that is primarily um, commercial payers, like, in, you know, insurance companies and health plans and in and how you, uh, in, you know, maybe in the challenges that exist?
1: I think so. I think the risks, you know, because of the laws that are out there are generally federally focused, like the Federal False Claims Act, um, you know, is for federal payers, Medicare, Medicaid, CHAMPUS, all these government payers, but there are some states, I believe California is one of them, that they have state false, most states have state false claims yeah. acts as well, but I think in California and some others, they even go to the point of commercial insurance. So some of these state laws address, you know, false claims under commercial insurance. Um, without those types of things, I think you're dealing with, and I'm not the lawyer here, but I think you're dealing with things like contract disputes and, and maybe other types of broad fraud types of things that you'd have to prove, like fraud versus, you know, like a right, an honest did. mistake type of thing.
0: It's true. Yes, it's it is true that the standards can be different state to state, um, and there's overlapping jurisdictions. Right there's there's right. sort of the federal. Um, uh, you know the federal program level of things, and you know as you mentioned, many states have um, analogs to some of these, um, um, you know, some of these fraud, waste, and abuse requirements and and false claims um, restrictions. And and there's also most states have insurance codes, um, right. and there's you know s- some parallel regulations, and even in some cases um, stricter regulations that have to do with you know what you can you know what you need to um do to substantiate a claim on you know that a, that a commercial carrier that an insurance company is uh you know going to compensate for well let me uh, i know we're getting closer to the yeah to the are, end we, of our we can time talk forever <laughs> <laughs> well let, let me let me maybe this is a good closing question what uh what should i have asked you that i didn't are there you know is it, what do you wish that i had asked um oh. you know that that you think is important um you know, that you want to say a few words on that uh, that maybe I didn't ask.
1: Yeah. So maybe we'll take, you know, we took a pretty deep dive into one topic of medical necessity. Let me maybe just take a step back and just look at it at a very high level, just compliance program effectiveness. Um, You know, we can get very granular on certain issues like we did, but it's, I think it's good as compliance professionals every now and then take a step back and take a step out of your organization, maybe bring in a colleague, maybe bring in a third party vendor to, to to do a review, a fresh set of eyes to say, okay, how does this compliance program function? Now, maybe not at the granular level, but are they meeting all the elements, right? Do Do they have good leadership? Is the board actively engaged in their oversight duties? You know, is the compliance officer running the show or is there a committee, right? Different little things that you can look at. How are policies functioning? How is your proactive auditing? A lot of us in compliance do a lot of good reactive auditing you know, when an issue arises, but are we being proactive? I think that's a, demonstrating how proactive you are to me is a sign of a, of a little bit more mature compliance program. You're not just being reactive. So, you know, one thing that I, you know, to kind of answer your question is I would say, take a step back and look at a high level of overall effectiveness of your entire compliance program. I know you do some of this work as well. So, I mean, do you have thoughts on that point?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think... um you know medical necessity and is is part of it you know is is a is a piece to integrate into your into your overall compliance program and you know there's there's many many components you know ranging from ranging from um you know financial pieces and, and medical necessity you know certainly fits in there but there's you know questions of quality there's questions right. of um you know privacy and security of data there you know there there are so many complex issues and you know this is a, this is a this is maybe a good question to end on because i think it touches on you know um one of the the earliest things that that you were mentioning of you know getting into the field of healthcare compliance and some of the challenges but really what makes it i think very interesting is there it is you know there are Are a lot of overlapping pieces. Um, And I think to be, you know, an effective compliance officer, you need to be good at the specifics, you know, and something as, um, you know, detailed and, and granular as medical necessity and, you know, maybe the medicine or science behind a specific claim, but also be able to see the really big picture and you know what your organizational risks are generally and you know by definition um you're going to have finite resources and one of the the hardest things is to be able to say well this is going to be my focus this year or this quarter or this month or this week um because if i focus you know and i know if i focus on this or i spend resources on that i may um, not be able to apply those resources or focus on on something else. So, um I think yeah. you know it's it's important that uh, you know your organization well. And, yeah. uh, and you know you're able to to think in in uh, in broad terms.
1: And I think what you just described is kind of the work plan approach, right? It's limited resources. I have these three hundred risks. I can focus on the top twenty percent because those are our probably biggest bucket. And then I usually get that work plan approved by a committee or a board, so that it's a it's an intentional decision to say, with our limited resources, this is where we need to focus, consciously recognizing that we might not get to these other things. And DOJ in their uh, evaluation of compliance program documents talk about that. They're saying, right. even if you miss a lower risk issue because you've been focusing on higher risks, that does not necessarily mean your compliance program is ineffective. Uh, it just means you you applied things in the right way. So I I I like what you said there.
0: Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you for this opportunity. I had uh, uh, it was very interesting sitting um, in this seat as the interviewer. Um, <laughs> you know, as you mentioned, I've been I've been your guest a couple of times, and um, I, I you know I like the pressure being on someone else. Yeah, well,
1: and I was nervous, but then I'm like, okay, Nick's a good guy. He's a good friend, and you you gave me some some good questions. But I, I the nervousness went away, and so I appreciate you you're uh, asking some great questions, and really appreciate your presence here today. Um, and maybe we'll do it again, Nick. Sounds good. And everybody, thank you all for for joining us for another episode of Compliance Conversations. Again, just a quick reminder, make sure you subscribe and and hit the like button, all that type of stuff to to kind of raise awareness of of these types of uh, communications. Take care, everyone.
0: Compliance Conversations is sponsored by Healthicity. Healthicity designs software and services that simplify compliance and auditing challenges that reduce your risk and save you money. Where others see complexity, we see simplicity. For more information, visit HealthTheCity.com.